Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the outlook for the UK market, whether its unloved cheap stocks are set for a revival, and if the energy crisis and war in Ukraine has caused a shakeup of what constitutes ethical investing. With Miles Sherry, investment consultant, Stephen Peters, Senior Portfolio Manager, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Welcome back to Word on the Street. Now, our attention today sits firmly on our home markets here in the UK. And whilst it's admittedly a relatively small part of most of our portfolios and funds, mainly because we simply don't set the beat for the global economy in any way like the US does, it is a very interesting area at the moment when considering various factors, really, including recent performance, what role inflation may play in that, dividends, the recovery we've seen there, mergers and acquisitions too, and also ESG, particularly actually when considering defence and where that sits given recent events. So we've got our resident expert, Stephen Peters, back on to chat through all of this and more. But Will, before we get specifically onto the UK, incredibly, we're already into the second quarter of the year. So maybe it's worth just briefly starting with a bit of a look back over the first quarter uh, and what an interesting one it was. Yeah, Miles. I mean, it was so much more besides as well, wasn't it? I mean, I think, you know, from viewed from, if you're just trying trying to get a sort of, you know, a snapshot of what the economy has looked like and how that's different uh, in this quarter from, you know, when we were looking at this quarter from 2021, you know, the real difference is like the, the about turn in central banks. You know, this is the kind of activity we haven't seen in decades, in all honesty. Uh, you know, if you go back to a year ago, we were looking at this year with, you know, everyone in the market was looking at this year, saying it was pretty much going to be a year of, you know, central bankers sitting on their hands and sort of trying to provide the recovery from the blows of the pandemic, a little bit more monetary nurture. But and now we look to today and interest rates are rising aggressively and you know, and are set to rise so rise more. You know, that's what the words out of the central bank are telling us. So, yes, you know, Ukraine's been the story that sort of obviously deservedly commanded all the headlines. But, you know, this is really one of an economy that is running pretty hot and that, you know, the demand in most in, in the UK and many other economies, the aggregate demand is massively kind of swamping the ability of the economy to supply things like workers, commodities and so on. So you're finding prices soaring and got this cost of living crisis. So those are the stories sort of more UK specific and, you know, in, in Europe as well. But yeah, like you say, it's been a complicated, disorienting, tragic, you know, and everything else besides quarter. Many words you could use to describe it, absolutely. But look, I guess picking up on your point there in terms of what it means in terms of, I guess, stock or, or sector performance, if you like, the first quarter really saw the the more fashionable parts of the stock market from recent years, at least. So sectors like technology, other so-called growthy areas lose ground to less loved sectors like mining and energy, which the UK, of course, has a lot more exposure to relative to, say, the US. So, Stephen, what happened there and, and what did that ultimately mean, I suppose, for, for UK stock pickers? Yeah, hi, Miles. Will, everybody. Absolutely, as you said, really strong period for the for the energy stocks, the big large cap energy names with the rising oil price, rising gas price as well. 
Also for materials, these are your miners, the people that dig out the iron ore or the copper or the whatever it is. So very, very strong period for those old, old school, unloved, high dividend yield paying sectors. And in contrast, as you rightly say, really difficult sector for the things that have done so well for the last, well, probably since the last financial crisis of 2008, nine. So consumer discretionary staples have been not strong it not a big sector in the uk but that was that's been pretty weak and then if you look at it broken down in different ways the larger companies have massively outperformed the smaller companies and the medium-sized companies and value the old economy sectors have been really strong compared to growth as a style what does that all mean that all adds up to a really really tough time for active managers most of whom are overweight they own a lot of the medium and small size companies which they think can grow fast or grow faster than larger companies and equally many of them just don't have a, a lot of exposure to the the sectors such as the mining and the oil and the banks that have done a lot better in the last three months than they have done for a long time got it and thinking about the uk more broadly from the reading that i've been doing at least there seems to be you know admittedly still a bit of a divergence in views across the industry at the moment in terms of the prospects for, for the UK market. Many still deem it to be quite unloved, though. But why do you think that is, given, after all, the FTSE 100, as you said, the biggest 100 companies in the UK, is really dominated by names operating in the world of energy, defence, pharmaceuticals, all spaces, really, that seem to be very high in demand at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably more of a question for Will, I'd say, rather than me. I mean, what I would say, because I, I mean, I look at the one asset class, really, and Will looks around the world. I'd say uh, lots of people are saying, may think, you know, a stop clock is right twice a day. Can the UK do this for the next three years, let alone the last three months? And equally, I mean, I've, I've mentioned this in podcasts and articles before. The UK is not very favourably inclined towards the ESG agenda, by which I mean it doesn't have a large number of the stocks that are very popular with global ESG investors. It has lots of dirty things that operate in dirty industries, like I said, mining or oil. Yeah. So um, that's why I think they may be un- out. It may be out of favour. Continue to have to be out of favour. But I mean, Will, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it's. I'm going to throw in a curveball, I guess, and say one of the interesting things about that point you made on ESG is whether we are from an overall market perspective and all sorts of investors and our investors sort of, you know, ask us to invest in certain ways, like many other sort of houses do. But more broadly, there is evidence coming out that the cost of capital for these companies is not, you know, when you classify the world kind of, you know, very simplistically into evil stocks and good stocks, there's not a difference really in terms of how these companies, the cost of funding. So the, the argument really is that in an efficient market, there's something for everyone. All companies are able to access the market. I guess the problem for us really, and this is why, as you know, Stephen, we invest diversified across styles, is that, you know, the industry is pouring massive efforts into being able to how to predict the waxing and waning, just as you described so eloquently just now of how these styles are going in and out of popularity. And the reality is there's just not that much evidence that they're return predictable. So you've got to sort of invest across styles. Now, that means for me, within a globally diversified portfolio, the UK is an important part of your diversified you know, equity access. But it shouldn't, you know, just like many other asset classes or just small regions, they shouldn't, it shouldn't come to dominate your overall returns. And that's the important point is that's why, you know, for us, the global sort of global exposure is kind of preferred for most of our clients. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And and while we're on the topic of ESG, I mean, this is a really interesting space at the moment, because if you think about it, ourselves and, and other European nations like Germany in particular have become, in truth, used to, let's be frank, relatively cheap energy up until very recently, whilst also being able to develop a renewable energy policy. But as recent events have, of course, shown, we're very reliant on supply from from certain countries, the likes of Russia, as an example. So we don't really have energy security in, in that sense. Now, going forward, I guess there's a few different options here. We could accelerate that domestic renewable energy policy agenda to improve that security. But that, of course, will come at a cost. It's not cheap. Will, you were talking about uh, cake baking or at least attempting it last Please week. Please no. Please no. <laughs> this too, this does though also feel a little bit like, you know, in a sense, we're trying to have our cake and eat it, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like we can have cheap energy, low emissions and energy security. So surely one has to give here. Well, I think it's, I mean, it's even, it's even more complicated than that in many ways, isn't it? Because if you're thinking about, you know, one of the realizations of the last couple of years is that, you know, and Stephen's made this point many times before, is that what's clear is that, you know, in that necessary transition to a world of cleaner energy and sufficiently clean so as not to avoid kind of, you know, irreversible climate catastrophe, you know, you're still going to need fossil fuels because otherwise the cost, as we're finding right now, the cost of our transition to that more sustainable world will be unbearable, unequal economic privations on the poorest citizens in the world, where food and energy costs are higher as a proportion of their disposable income, their disposable expenditure. So, you know, there's got to be a way of, you know, we've got to invest more in re- that's probably the reality um, that there is, you know, the markets are saying we're offering you this extra incentive to dig up stuff and get us more sort of accessibly priced energy, let's say. But like you say, it's a very, very, very complicated situation. And to me, I have to say, just as a plug for what Stephen and the guys do, you know, part of this is that the whole ESG debate can become oversimplified, can't it? And just want to block out those companies. But actually what you want is, and what many in the industry are waking up to from these big houses, is your power as a collective advocate to channel your shareholders, your clients' interests in, into certain sort of objectives and standards uh, with regards to the company you invest in. So you affect change and help affect change and use that shareholder power, channel it in the right ways, hopefully. Um, and that is part of the guys, you know, Stephen, uh, Stephen and the co- what they do so well uh, is to make sure that those interests are represented and so on. Yeah, it, it, it is complicated, as you say, but maybe Stephen is a bit of a follow on point to that. I've been picking up recently in the financial press a lot of talk around defence. And I just think this is fascinating because if you go back, what, two, three, four years ago, uh, everyone was saying that defence was probably one of the least ESG friendly parts of the market that you could invest in. And now all of a sudden, given the Russia and Ukraine conflict, we seem to be in a world where some are saying that it's potentially very ESG friendly if it acts as a deterrent to conflict and actually helps promote and uh, ultimately maintain world peace. Now, most of that, as I said, stems from recent events. But I guess you can also include nuclear power in the same debate, really, because there seems to be a load more attention there, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think these are, are two examples of where the ESG debate has almost flipped in the last few years. I mean, nuclear, it started first there, probably around Fukushima, around the German dis- decision to get rid of their nuclear power stations. But the, the fact remains that that nuclear energy is produces 
no carbon emission. And some asset managers will canvas opinion from their clients about what their clients deem as green and, and as ESG friendly and you know, pick your appropriate acronym. But over that time, nuclear energy, well, over the last few years, nuclear energy has changed from being seen as unwanted to being seen as a provider of, as I said, low carbon emissions, large amounts of energy that doesn't come and go with the weather. So that's a really, really interesting debate. More recently, as rightly as you say, defence. In very, very simple terms, and this is not to trivialise the severity of what's going on at all, the ESG-ness of defence depends on which end, whether you're facing the pointy end of the weapon or not. Now, managers I've spoken to take different views on this. Some of them say, absolutely not, a missile is a missile, ultimately it aims to kill, therefore we're not going anywhere near it. Mm. But equally, others will say self-defence is perfectly justified, therefore we will own the two or three names in the UK, which are, to be frank, world leaders in munitions and armament production. It's a very difficult thing, isn't it? I just, you know, just listening to Stephen there, I mean, you know, one of the things that I think is happening at the moment as well, to Stephen's point, is that the industry is learning in real time about what are the sort of products and mechanisms that the industry can provide to, to affect change, to make the difference and to not just be greenwashing and sort of rubber stamping stuff in order to get over certain hurdles, but actually to be facilitating humanity's ability to overcome these you know, gigantic hurdles in the path ahead. And, you know, one hopes that now a little bit more precision is starting to enter into sort of, you know, the language and a little bit more sophistication in terms of the debate about how you affect change um, and how you get there and is it just by not owning certain companies or is it by you know emphasizing more your ability to influence change on certain sort of pre-agreed objectives it's going to be so interesting to see how this develops over time and look we could probably debate this for for an hour but we simply don't have time for that so let's move on to the next thing on my list which is uh, mergers and acquisitions otherwise known as M&A. I think I recall you and I, Stephen, talking about this actually at the start of last year, but the UK market still gathers a lot of interest. So so why is that? I've also noticed, but it's often the case that UK stock pickers running funds tend to sell their position at the first sign of a bid from, say, a US private equity firms. So do you have any views there too? Are they maybe selling too early? So if any... If any fund managers are listening to this podcast, and obviously I tell them all when I speak to them to, to, to do so, um, but when I, I, I urge them, please get in touch with me or us or whoever and communicate why this is. Because to me, it does seem like, as you, as you rightly say, the UK in 2022 has seen more bids or continuing number of bids for, for listed companies as we saw in 2021 large and small. And it continues to astound me why not more noise and pressure is put on the boards of companies that accept these bids to A, ask for more higher prices and B, actually not just give up in the face of a check from a US private equity company, but say, no, we have a viable business here. And yes, we're getting a premium today's share price, but actually we think this company could be worth multiples, hundreds of percent more than it's worth today. But it does seem to me that fund managers, yes, there are regulatory uh, rules around their fiduciary responsibility to act in the best interests of their shareholders. But it's not unheard of for managers to 
be holdouts and say, no, we're just not selling out. We think this company has a very, very strong future and we're not selling out at all. So, yeah, I think it's I find it very, very frustrating because it does seem to me like the UK does seem to be more accepting of bids for, quote unquote, the family silver than many, many other countries around the world. And I would love to hear from fund managers as to their views on why that is. There you go. If you are a UK fund manager, get in touch with Stephen. But look, let's take a let's take a look at dividends next because they've often been cited as a positive argument actually for investing in the UK, given companies here generally pay out more of their profits relative to say the US, with the S and P five hundred index obviously being dominated by firms operating in areas like technology, which usually instead reinvest profits back into research and development. Now, will we all know what happened back in 2020 amidst the pandemic with companies across the board really sharply decreasing the dividends they paid out or, or simply cutting them altogether. But we've probably seen a bit of a swifter recovery from that sense than what many originally anticipated, haven't we? Well, it's been a swifter recovery all around, hasn't it, Miles? Yeah, and that's yeah. kind of reflected in the, if you remember that huge debate back in kind of March, April 2020, it was really about sort of, you know, L-shaped recoveries or all that kind of thing. And actually, well, W's, but actually the economy has recovered incredibly briskly from the uh, crisis. And that's, you know, in no small part due to policymakers, you know, historically unprecedented degree of muscular kind of addition, you know, injections into the economy to backfill aggregate demand, which had slumped, like you say, because consumers were restrained. And, and it is also led to UK equity income funds. So managers focusing on investing in companies that pay a higher dividend relative to the market doing pretty well so far this year. Now, Stephen, I'm going to be really unfair and put you on the spot here. Can that continue? <laughs> well, that's the... Uh... That's a, that's a really interesting question, isn't it? The UK, higher yielding market than most others around the world, if not all the major ones. Can it continue? Well, this is the this is the debate. Where, where does the income come from? I think that's the first point to, cut, uh, to look at. The income comes from these big sectors, the ones we mentioned before, the oil sectors, the, the mining sector, the pharmaceuticals, the, pharma, uh, the, the banks as well. These are the big old economy, low growth, sectors that are pretty much out of favour. They don't really have a huge amount, but they're very cash generative. They look, produce lots and lots of cash and they don't really have much to do with that cash or their excess cash. So they return it in the form of dividends. So can it continue? Possibly. Some managers this year are already upgrading their own internal predictions or forecasts for dividend growth this year to the point where they think that their level of income paying out will be back to the same or higher than it was pre-COVID, which is a pretty rapid turnaround, to be honest. It's not going to be every single manager by any means, but it is incredible how fast, given the, you know, the depths of despond that we had in the uh, mid to late 2020 to where we are today, it is a very, very big turnaround. But it will all depend on how those big sectors do. So, for instance, should the oil price go from over $100 a barrel back down to 50 then you wouldn't expect dividends coming out of the oil majors to be growing quite as fast as they have been. But it could happen. But, you know, you can see the problem. Pro- you can see the, the situations that would occur for it to slow down a bit. And finally, it seems like we can't go a week on this podcast without talking about inflation. That's obviously quite relevant for the UK market, too. And William and team have spoken about this a lot. But what does it actually mean for the UK? Because generally speaking, I suppose you'd say inflation is good for the so-called value star that you've discussed. So sectors like energy, uh, maybe traditional financials, too, they tend to do well in that sort of backdrop. 
But talk of recession, which we spoke about last week, is also bad, I suppose, for many of the cheap retail stocks, which are presumably already actually cheap for a reason. Now, many will say this is why you may want to invest in companies that have a strong degree of pricing power, who can ultimately, hopefully pass those costs on to consumers without actually denting sales that much. Those companies tend to fall, though, in the growth bucket. So maybe the question is that actually growth as a style has taken a bit of a pause, but, but could be set for a bit of a comeback. Can I say something there? There's a weird thing in markets at the moment, which is, like I say, this this kind of when do you predict when styles are going to do well? And does that wash over everything else that you're seeing at the moment? Is that the most important thing to focus on? And one sort of theory, and the theory is a bit stronger and in, the intuition is a bit stronger than the statistical evidence for this. But, you know, if you think like a lot of the performance or some of the performance in the past decade, at least, has coincided with falling real interest rates. That's the outperformance of growth over value. So if you are entering a period, and so far this year, this would conform to this kind of idea, you are seeing rising real interest rates correspond to the bits of the market, like value, um, outperform outperform growth. It's a little bit, I'm, I'm cutting a few corners there, but it, it does illustrate to me, again, the need that if we are in a rising real interest rate environment, it's very important to be diversified across styles, which is you're getting your excess return from Stephen's skill in picking the right managers who are going to beat their respective indices, not from just, you know, getting that exposure. So. Because what you've seen is, and what the managers are talking to me about, is that lots of these companies that have seen very, very large falls in their share prices over the last three months or so, operationally, when they report their businesses to the market, operationally, they're fine. You know, we, we mentioned dividends just now. Operationally, they're fine. It's just their share price is massively derated. Operationally, why are they fine? Because they have pricing power, because, um, you know, you might be able to put 10p on your bottle of fabric conditioner and it's not noticed by the, you know, the person that when they go to their supermarket or do their online order. And, you know, so they can, the, the, the pri- or the, you know, the 5p on a bar of chocolate. I mean, we can talk about shrinkflation <laughs> in the future if you like, but, you know, you don't notice that 5p on the on your bar of chocolate. But it's the, com- the weaker can I companies, say I do. the ones. <laughs> I do. <laughs> do. I really notice it. Do you notice the, sh- the, the rising price or the small? I notice both, Stephen. I notice both. Well, we know enough about your desire for fried chicken. We don't need to know about chocolate too. Stephen, you, you, you carry on. The, you know, the big names, the big household names that own the big household brands that you uh, do your washing with, you brush your teeth with, you, you buy their chocolates. These are the ones that have pricing power. These are not so much growth, perhaps, but maybe quality. So maybe it's a situation where exactly as Will said, you know, rising interest rates, rising bond yields, rising inflation, very good for value. But the longer term winners in that kind of environment are the ones whose products will still be bought by people, even if they do get more expensive. And it's those quality brands, names, the ones with the stereotypical moat around them. They're the ones that could do very, very well in a situation where there is persistent inflation. The reality is it's incredibly complicated. And this market, as well as any, really exemplifies, going back to what Will was saying, why you want to be as diversified as possible across all those different asset classes, geographies, sectors and styles but look guys really appreciate it really interesting debate we've hit time so we'll wrap it up there Uh, enjoy the weekend when it comes and we'll speak again next week all investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance this podcast is not a personal investment recommendation